We love our heroes, perhaps now more than ever. While no one of us will ever be Spider-Man or Thor, there are those amongst us who rise above. Norman Burlaw has been credited with saving one billion lives by developing a hearty strain of wheat. James Blunt, yes, that James Blunt, ignored a direct order to invade the Pristana airport and thus avoiding World War III. When something mind-shatteringly horrible happens to these larger-than-life figures, it's hard to believe that it may be the doing of a single person. Perhaps that's why conspiracies pop up around the deaths of JFK, RFK, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and, of course, the family of famed aviator Charles Lindbergh. Y'all listening to Old Timey Crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here's your hosts, Christy and Scott. Hey, it's Old Timey Crimey. I'm Christy. I'm Scott. And I'm Amber. We are here. Yay. <laughs> How's everybody doing this week? I'm so tired. Please kill me so I can sleep. I, I need a drink. <laughs> it's been that kind of week. Yeah, yeah, it has. How's your week, Christy? I mean, it's medium. It's had its highs and its lows. I, I knocked over, about uh, two two hours ago or so, I knocked over a ceramic pot full of change, so I got to pick up ceramic dust and quarters and I don't pennies. know why, but I really thought she was going to say she knocked over a liquor store. I mean, <laughs> maybe it's kind of, you know, a code? <laughs> ceramic jar. I knocked over a ceramic jar and I got all a quarters. Christy knocked over a liquor store. Actually knocked it over. She ran her car into it. <laughs> Collapsed. They Killed actually, three people. They don't They don't knock over when you run your car into it. Just I've seen it. <laughs> it's Johnstown. People randomly run into stores all the time. You'd be surprised. Yeah, yeah. Like, I actually had a really interesting thing happen uh, at work today. I was outside, not in work, like I should have been. And uh, somebody had hit something. And then as they were trying to turn up our street, their wheel fell off. So she left it there and ran up the road. <laughs> right? Oh and so, like, me being the good Samaritan that I am, I just love to start shit. So, like, the cops are called, and I'm like... Like, right by the cops. I'm like, do you want a description of the person? I can tell you where she went. They're like, no, this is fine. I'm like, man. We want to solve this on hard mode. Here in Johnstown, we have a Dollar Tree that's been hit by a car twice. My favorite is the one that was in reverse. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. Jump the curb and everything. Yeah. That was impressive. I loved that one. That was... I watched it like 80 times just on loop. It was like the best gif ever. Thank God for security cameras. <laughs> well, tell you about some people who didn't have security cameras. Well, it was the 30s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. This kind of thing doesn't... It's It may still happen these days, but it's, it's somewhat easier to track things down. So we're talking this week about the kidnapping of baby... Charles Lindbergh Jr. This is a heavy hitter. It is a heavy hitter. I've got nine freaking pages here. This is this is one of those cases that really kind of changed everything. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I don't think there's ever going to be a conclusion to this. Yeah, you're right. You know, even even though like we have all the ingredients for a conclusion, still there's mystery surrounding it because we don't like to think one person is capable of this much damage to a hero, plain and simple. Mm -hmm. So H.L. Mencken would eventually call it the biggest story since the resurrection. Really? 
may have been exaggerating or um, being a little facetious because, you know, there was a lot of hubbub. There was another trial of the century. Okay, what do you think would be the biggest story since the resurrection? I don't know. Another resurrection? <laughs> I'm thinking Chernobyl. Chernobyl's pretty big. And yeah. it's long-lasting effects. I yeah. don't know. I don't know. It's really a tough call. I mean, world wars that have caused you know massive plagues. <laughs> Definitely. Go to Podbean. Uh, oldtimeycrimey.podbean.com in the comments for this episode let us know what you think the biggest story <laughs> since the resurrection yes, was yes there you go so I think we should give a little background on Lindbergh uh, just to really show where he stood in society massive balls <laughs> huge huge balls man with huge balls this man with huge balls was born on February 4th 1902 he was the son of Swedish immigrant and congressman Charles August Lindbergh and his second wife, Evangeline Lodge Land Lindbergh, as a name. <laughs> I love the Swedish accent. Yeah. I love, I know we're getting off track right away. Didn't take long. <laughs> no, I got to tell this story. I went to see, I, I went just, to see. I just deflated. I know, she just deflated. I went to see King Lear in Minneapolis back in 1996 and the guy playing King Lear had the strongest fake Swedish accent I've ever heard in my life. It was like, you know, that maggot to better. It was like that bad. It was like Swedish chef bad times 10. Everybody like was having a hard time hearing him. After it was done, I turned around to the people behind me, just complete strangers, and I said, that was the best darn King Lear I ever did hear. <laughs> Please continue. Right. So Lindbergh's father was one of the only congressmen to oppose the United States' involvement in World War I, even though he technically wasn't in Congress at the time of the vote, but he still stood up against it. He wrote a book called Why Your Country Is at War that was critical of uh, our country's involvement in World War I. Uh, the Comstock Act uh, went into effect, and they seized that. And no, there was way too much research. I didn't even click that link. <laughs> it's like, Good. it's an act. They they seized the book. All right, that was done. Um, I think it has to do with uh, treason and the other thing. <laughs> the one that goes along with treason. Sedition. Maybe. I don't know. Um, so it was then reissued in 1934, 10 years after his death, as... Your country at war and what happens to you after a war. So, second edition, you know. What to expect when you're expecting a war. Yeah. Edition five. Excellent. So you just found out you're at war. War for dummies. <laughs> Chapter one, people die. So uh, Lindbergh actually dropped out of the College of Engineering at the University of Wisconsin-Madison his sophomore year in 1920. He wanted to start training to be a pilot, get into aviation. Uh, he did some training. He did some barnstorming and such. And then he went on to get military flight training for a year with the United States Army Service in 1924. Graduated first in his class. Good for him. Which would be a lot more impressive if all of the 104 original cadets still were in the class. But there were only 18 left after a year. 
So uh, pretty pretty rigorous culling there that they did. Still pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, know. culling or dying. You know, if it's flight in in the in the twenties, it's, it's not super safe. It's like it's like they got a lot of Boeing seven thirty sevens in the air. Dying is just another way of saying you failed this course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also a lot of other courses look, like life. Look surviving. to your left. Look to your right. Look forward. Look back. A lot of you are gonna be, not be here. You're all gonna die. <laughs> yeah. Do you really want to take this? <laughs> So he went on to be an airmail pilot, and eventually... That's air female pilots, you know, <laughs> hadn't come around for a while. I'm so glad we've just gone to the air gender neutral pilots. <laughs> we are living in much more enlightened times Absolutely. now. Absolutely. So he became famous. We only know his name today due to his winning the Orteg Prize, which was $25,000. That's about $371,000 in 2020. It was put up in 1919. Um, and it said, you know, if anybody can make a successful nonstop flight between New York City and Paris for the next five years, you'll, you'll get this money. Five years passed. Nobody did it. So in 1924, they're like, all right, fine, we'll try again. We're really all about making this happen. So after the 1924 announcement of the prize re-upping, people started really competing for it. I mean, investing lots of money and everything and dying. <laughs> so we have Noel Davis and Stanton H. Wooster, who are U.S. naval aviators. They were going to give this a go, uh, but uh, they were testing a heavy load of gas at Langley Field in Virginia, and they crashed on April 26th, 1927. I had a heavy load of gas the other day. <laughs> Thai food. Shit. Yeah. I think somebody actually crop dusted me at work today. Really? Yeah. Right like, on. Somebody walks past, like a new person, don't even know him, and all of a sudden it's just like, that motherfucker! <laughs> <laughs> I know that wasn't me. <laughs> so, and then on May 8th, uh, Charles Nungesser and Francois Colley, they were French war heroes. Uh, they tried it from the Paris side. Now, I should tell you that these guys were pretty interesting. Coley was uh, a one-eyed pilot because he had lost his uh, one eye in the war. And he had also set several other records previously, so he seemed to be pretty good at it, despite, you know, probably not having great depth perception. <laughs> and um, at the end of the war, I would like to read you an entire paragraph of Nungesser's injuries at the end of World War One. Oh, my God. Oh. Skull okay. fracture, brain concussion, internal injuries, multiple, five fractures of the upper jaw, two fractures of lower jaw, piece of anti-aircraft shrapnel embedded in right arm, dislocation of knees, left and right, re-dislocation of left knee, bullet wound in mouth, bullet wound in ear, atrophy of tendons in left leg, atrophy of muscles in calf, dislocated clavicle, dislocated wrist, dislocated right ankle, loss of teeth, contusions, too numerous to mention. Is he like the Jackie Chan of pilots? His picture should be in what to expect when your country goes to war. <laughs> This this guy should he's just like the <laughs> this this guy he will get a million injuries or die. Like at some point you gotta go. Are you just doing this to yourself, buddy? That's a lot. I, I'm, I was still stuck on the five breaks of the upper jaw. Is that what it was? Oh yeah, five fractures of the upper jaw. Yeah. How? <laughs> And also, ow! <laughs> no, but how? I have no idea. Um, Maybe he got punched a lot. I actually know somebody who had their upper jaw broken. They got hit, like, right here, right underneath the nose, and it broke the palate <gasps> up above in their no, mouth. No, 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 no! But that's what it would be. It's really difficult to break the upper jaw, but he did get shot in the face at yeah. one point there, so... Maybe that did one of the breaks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he just got punched in the face a lot. I mean, a bullet wound in mouth. That'll fracture some shit. Mm -hmm. Was he trying to kill himself or... <laughs> 
Like, he was in war, Amber. He was in war. And like guy, I said, did he try to kill himself? Some guy pulled a gun on him and he just went, whoa. <laughs> So Lindbergh has manages to scrape up some financing, only $18,000. This is $267,000 in today's money, but it's still way less than the other competitors had. And he finances his attempt with this. He took off in, we all know this car, the Spirit of Saint, or this car. No, 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 this plane. There you go. That would be even more impressive. Oh, yeah, I'll win your fucking prize, and I'm doing it in an automobile. <laughs> Fuck your planes. Nonstop drive flight to Paris. I'm. <laughs> my car is like Jesus; it drives on water. <laughs> so the, the trick is to really overinflate the tires. Yeah. <laughs> so, it works in cartoons. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, let's do everything that the Roadrunner does, <laughs> or uh, Coyote. Wiley. Thank you, Wiley Coyote. <laughs> you can tell who the adults and who the children are. <laughs> That, that I still watch be... some cartoons. Oh, I love cartoons. <laughs> so he took off in the spirit of St. You know what? I've been going back and forth. St. Louis, St. Louis. Which one am I using? I always heard spirit of St. Louis. Okay. All right. Spirit of St. Louis. Early morning of May 20th, 1927. And keep in mind, May 8th. Oh, I forgot to finish Charles Nungasser and Francois Coley. Uh, they were tried this from the Paris side. They were last seen around the west coast of Ireland and then never seen again. So 12 days before he leaves, they disappear. They thought that the one guy thought he was 120 feet above the water instead of a foot and two inches. Yeah. <laughs> Damn missing eye. And then another guy had died, or another two guys had died less than two months before, not even attempting it, just testing to attempt it. So all this had happened fairly recently. So it's got to be in his, in his head, you know. But he still, he takes off. He flies for 33.5 hours. I can't stay awake that long. He had to have nodded off at some point. You know, they didn't have, like, monsters or anything. Like, what, just have a giant pot of coffee next to him. No, okay, I can, I can attest to this. So if you are full of spite, you can do anything. <laughs> Spite-powered flying. Also, on top of that, mind-shattering fear is a really good way to stay awake. Well, no, awake. like, okay, so this, this was back when I was very, very young. Um, I was not allowed to take my vacation that I wanted to take. Um, which was basically just a drunken road trip. So I picked up everybody else's shift, and I worked for 37 and a half hours straight. Oh, my God. Out of spite alone. <laughs> so that way they wouldn't pay me the overtime, and they are like, no, that's fine, just go. You're off for the rest of the week. And I'm Damn. like, <laughs> Yeah, spite will do it, I guess. So he, with his spite uh, and probably mind-shattering fear, he had to fight lots of weather and atmospheric issues. There were storms. There was icing, which is, as we know, not great for aircraft. Uh, fog. Uh, it was, you know, there, there were high waves, and it was really rough. Um, he lands at Le Bourget Aerodrome at 10.22 p.m. on May 21st. Now, the Aerodrome wasn't even on his map. He kind of knew where it was, you know, but he got confused because there were tons of lights around it. So he thought it was actually like an industrial center. What all those lights were was the largest traffic jam in Paris history of people coming and flocking to see him land. Oh, neat. And he was known as the Lone Eagle. Ooh. And another fun fact, he, in 1928, was the very first time Man of the Year. And he's still, to this day, the youngest ever at only 26 years old. Boom. He did all this mm -hmm. shit at 26, and I'm sitting here at 37, so. Well, yeah. their, their life expectancy was much shorter, though, that in, is in defense. Uh, Charles Lindbergh have a podcast? I, thought, I fucking think not. 
Yeah, yeah, sure. Go ahead with your fucking plane there. I got a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> so after the flight and when his fame came around, he met Anne Morrow in December of 1927. So this is in, in his you know big year. Um, her father was actually his financial advisor and a partner at J.P. Morgan. Anne Morrow was 21 and a senior at Smith College. I did listen to a podcast today that said that before he got with her, he was with her sister, Elizabeth. Um, I'm... Mm. If I mention it, do I have to put it in my sources because I got angry at this podcast and now I don't want to put it in my sources? No. <laughs> okay. But I'm just no. saying that I did see that, but I didn't put any stock in what this, so I'm not using that information at all. Aside from that, I'm not, I don't put any stock in that, so. Imagine how Anne's got to feel, too, on, on this. Usually, you know, it's the, it's the woman that kind of chooses the man and stuff like this. Charles Lindbergh could have had anybody he yeah. wanted. Like, his, his life was essentially going to be an avalanche of vagina. Mm-hmm. It still was. Uh, yeah, later not, on. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was quite the avalanche. He, he well, agreed to the arranged marriage, which is what I'm calling this. We'll get to the other stuff. Yeah, it's, I know. It's there. I'm, I'm skipping that. <laughs> okay. But, like, I feel very much like this was an arranged marriage. The financial advisor's like, you should shack up with one of my girls, and I'll, I'll stay here and work for you and make you lots of money. I mean, that's this job. He should be doing it anyhow, but maybe maybe there was something else on the side. But I don't know. She She definitely seemed really in love with him. From, from her quote. So if she was just, you know, an arranged marriage, either it was one that, that worked out pretty well, at least as far as her actually loving him was concerned, or she put on a good show. Yeah. But she really rose to his level. Um, they were married on May 26th, 1929, and she had her first solo flight that same year. Oh, cool. Yeah, she became a pilot as well. The next year, she was the first woman to get a first-class glider pilot's license. And a glider, for anyone who doesn't know, is an unpowered aircraft that uses air currents to fly. So, yeah, she they they would fly together. They had the first flight from Africa to South America. Uh, they did some exploring around trying to find new courses and new routes uh, from North America. They found a route across the northern Pacific to Asia that is still being used today. That stuns me. We're talking like the 1930s. 1930s. And people are still finding new routes. It's very nearly 100 years ago. Yeah, yeah, but that... I mean, flight was just brand new, but new yeah. routes that are still in use now. Yeah. You know, that's that's how groundbreaking they were. I don't agree with a quote I saw somewhere that from one of his friends that if he hadn't made that flight, he'd be a gas station owner or something like that. I think that's bullshit. I mean, maybe he wouldn't be known, but he would still have been, you know, pretty big and flying. I if think. you mean fuel tycoon, then maybe, <laughs> yes. 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 <laughs> gas station owner... Uh, maybe a hundred of them. Yeah. So on June 22nd, 1930, they have their first child, Charles Jr. Also on Anne's 24th birthday, to which I say fucking hey, Geez, seriously? On, on her birthday, she gives birth to her first child. She's already like gotten her pilot's license and, and, and solo flights and all this shit. It's just kind of ridiculous. Like I once passed a kidney stone on my birthday. You don't see me getting all teary eyed over it. Yeah. <laughs> so they had a house near Hopewell, New Jersey. Now, some sources I read said that this was a weekend house, but for some reason they're there on Tuesday, March 1st, 1932. Um, I don't really have a lot of information on why that is. Um, I did just very brief research on Hopewell and didn't find very much of interest. I was my interest was piqued for this just a split second because in 1876 the Frog War occurred there. 
<laughs> but it was a fight between competing railroads that got so bad the oh. militia had to step in, right? That was exactly oh, my reaction. I was just like, oh. I was like, a plague of frogs attacks the town. <laughs> yeah. If it wasn't for the Ninja Turtles, we would still be <laughs> under the oppressive flipper of the frogs. <laughs> So yeah, that was kind of, but Hopewell Elementary School's mascot is Freddy the Frog because of this. So that's Why couldn't they be real frogs? (laughs) I know, right? I was so, you have no idea how disappointed I was. (laughs) Fucking New Jersey. (laughs) So shall we get to the meat of the episode? The bad thing that happens to people. Yeah, I guess so. March 1st, 1932, Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr., he is 20 months old. Uh, his Scottish nurse, Betty Gow, put him to bed around 7.30 p.m. Uh, the nursery was on the second story. She checks on him around 8.30. Everything's fine. All is well. Baby's sleeping. Happy house. Around 9.30, Charles Lindbergh heard a snapping noise. And they had, you know, they had uh, two other servants aside from Gow in the house. He just assumed somebody had snapped a, a wooden crate in the kitchen. Uh, around 10 p.m., Betty Gow noticed that baby Charles is gone, and she immediately tells the Lindberghs, and of note is the fact that Anne was pregnant with her second son, John, at the time. Uh, he'd be born in August that year, and is still alive now, actually, so. But uh, that just that just floored me, the, the amount of stress that must be to lose your first, or lose any child, mm-hmm. while pregnant. I mean, it's it's kind of amazing that she was able to carry that pregnancy to term. It that that just astonishes me because that's a lot of stress and trauma for a person, and that can really negatively affect a pregnancy. So, um, Mrs. Lindbergh did recall that earlier in the day she had been in the nursery and she'd seen that the screen on the window had been open. She tried to fasten it and she couldn't. So possibly some prep work, maybe. We're not really sure. We don't have any specific. I mean, that just it could just be a coincidence. It, it was one of the small clues that would later lead detectives to go. This was an inside job. Yeah, yeah. That's entirely. It's one of those. It's one of those little clues that it, it could mean something and it could mean nothing. It, right. It could just be coincidence. It could be a sign of a conspiracy. So. The report goes to the police, the local police, they come, and Lindbergh's like, no, 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 nobody touches anything until the the New Jersey State Police get here. Uh, They come and they find a makeshift three-piece extension ladder about 30, or sorry, 60 feet from the house. But the house had just been built the last summer, so Lindbergh was like... I'm, I'm going to call him Lindy from now on. Just That's fine. Just fun. Lindy couldn't say whether or not it was from the construction or, or what, but uh, the middle section had the side rails split. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, the tr- There were tracks from the window to where the ladder was left. And then not footprints necessarily. We don't ever get any actual footprints, but they were tracks. So somebody had, you know, trod through the, you know, mud or whatever. It was, it's March in right. New Jersey. I'm sure it's pretty muddy. It's pretty freaking muddy here. Yeah. My gosh. It's like a, a mud farm outside the, the duck's pen. <laughs> like I'm risking my life and limb every time I get them out to put them to bed. We live in a very moist part of the world. Oh, yeah. don't say that word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was also, uh, Scott, that, that was for you, Beast. <laughs> moist. <laughs> Stop it. We're losing listeners by the second. <laughs> I'm telling you, like 50% of people hate... 
<laughs> I'm going to roll this up. I'm going to roll it up like a newspaper. I'm going to hit you like a dog. Not Arter that I would mommy. do that. <laughs> ew, ew. You made it so gross. I did. <laughs> so uh, there's tracks uh, and then to the ladder, and then a smaller set of tracks joins up, and they disappeared about a half mile away right by the highway. So it's suspected that they got away in a car. They, or he or they got away in a car. But when you have two tracks, it's kind of, you know, like... Charles Lindbergh also finds a baby's blanket. And later on, he finds a ransom note in an envelope on the windowsill. And it is just filled with bad grammar and poor handwriting. It was very, very hard for me, a professor of writing, to read this. Was, oh my goodness, I couldn't even make out half of I was like, what? Were they writing with their opposite hands? Yeah, <laughs> Sir, have 50,000 ready, 25,000 20 bills, 15,000 in 10 bills, and 10,000 in 5 bills after 2-4 days. We will inform you where to deliver the money. We warn you for making any ding. That's not that's not me doing an accent. It's literally spelled any a, any ding. Any ding. Yes. Public or for notify the police the child is in good care. Mm-hmm. Indication for all letters are signature and three holes. <laughs> and that actually is a signature that would appear on on future letters. It's two blue circles that are connected, sort of Venn diagram like. And then there's holes on either side, and in the middle of the blue circle is a filled-in red circle with a hole in it. So somebody got all artistic, like. This honestly sounds like like Gru from Despicable Me wrote this letter. <laughs> <laughs> and that uh, fifty thousand dollars is nine hundred eighty thousand. Uh, 816 in 2020. Um, and I did some, I, I, I did the math. I was curious how much this would weigh. Cause I was like, you got all these bills, you know, $25,000 and $20 bills, $10,000 and $5 bills. So um, it adds up to 4,750 bills. One bill is about one gram. There's 454 grams in a pound. So this is just over a little, a little over 10 pounds in bills if we're doing actual um, you know, the, the bills that we use today. Now, what was used back then, we'll get to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they search the scene. They find no blood, no fingerprints. The room, actually, there's no adult fingerprints in the room, in the, in the nursery. There a, would have been. A child kidnapped him. <laughs> <laughs> Be on the lookout for a four-year-old. With another, with a two-year-old, <laughs> and maybe a six-year-old in there. Yeah, okay, so I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and I can guarantee you that my four-year-old could easily kidnap a two-year-old. And would. Probably, yes. Yeah, so it's doable. I mean, that's totally doable, but, like, everything would be sticky. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd know right away. <laughs> there is mud on the nursery floor, but not very much. There are impressions under the nursery window, but like I said, they're not actual footprints. Uh, the uh, the ladder that they find, there are 400 partial fingerprints on there, but uh, I don't believe, as far as I'm aware, they ever actually matched those up, so those never actually came in handy. And even so, it didn't really matter because people came flocking to the scene. Rubberneckers and souvenir collectors. People are bastards, is what I'm going to go ahead and say there. People yeah. suck. Oh, I, I knew people sucked from the beginning, but I didn't realize how bad they sucked. Go back and listen to one of our old episodes, Bell Gunnis, Picnic at the Murder Farm. Yes. <laughs> 
Like, at, at what point do you become just as bad as the as the people you're gawking at? Yeah, yeah, that's very true. They they basically destroyed the scene, uh, destroyed all the evidence. A bunch of colonels actually rocked up and they were like, "We'll help. We're here." Uh, there was one that had some law enforcement experience and was actually the current superintendent of the New Jersey State Police. And if uh, you were cogn- you know, aware of things during the 90s, this name is going to sound super familiar. Colonel Herbert Norman Schwarzkopf. And yes, that is indeed the father of General Norman Schwarzkopf, who led coalition forces during the Gulf War. Storm and Norman. Storm and Norman. So, uh, Lindy wanted no interference from the law enforcement until the ransom was paid and the baby was back home. Right. He's, he's not thinking random dude. He's actually thinking mob connections. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of crazy. Like, he, he sends out uh, word that he wants to start negotiations with the kidnappers. And uh, they even tried to find the, the, you know, the kidnappers through the mob. We have... Salvatore Spitali and Irving Bitts. These were referenced actually in episode 27, the mm-hmm. Legs Diamond episode. Uh, and they give, gave Legs Diamond the money to try his big drug deal in Europe. So they become Lindy's intermediaries. Or, you know, they, they basically contact a bunch of mobsters, both jailed and not. And, you know, the ones who were in jail were like, yeah, I'll help. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you give me money or let, let me, out. me out, I can help you a lot more if there's not bars between me and the world. We're talking some pretty heavy names. We're talking Abner's Wilman, uh, Joe Aponis, Willie Moretti, and no less than fucking Al Capone, Scarface himself. Yep. Yeah. Going like, I- I'll help. Sure. Why not? Just <laughs> let me out. Let, let me out. I got syphilis. Hey, come on. I'm sure that was his argument. I'm going gonna, gonna to find who did this and fuck them, and they'll have syphilis too. Hey. hey. Everybody, hey syphilis my. for you. Syphilis for you. Everybody gets syphilis. Hey. <laughs> so even President Herbert Hoover was notified of this. Now, kidnapping at the time was not a federal crime. It was not, yes, I know. That's that, a right? huge okay. oversight. It is a huge oversight. I thought you were laughing at my accidental rhyme. Well, well, no, I feel like at the time they're like, nobody would do that. Like, who would do that? It was happening all the time, though. Kidnapping was the, all the rage in the late 20s and early 30s. It was the thing to do. It was It was a situation where, God help you if you were 12 years old and walking down the pier in San Francisco because you were going to get shanghaied. And they would just take you onto a boat, work you for a year, and then set you free. And then when somebody tried to report it, run away. Mm-hmm. Which we still see far later, although generally with, with, with older children, you know, like teens, you still see that 16 years old and they 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 disappeared. And, oh, what do you know? Their, their wallet and their shoes were left by their car. Oh, that was a runaway. Who runs away barefoot? I mean, do you really, like, you know what? I really want to run away, but I want it to be a challenge, and I want to build some calluses. You couldn't necessarily bring federal charges for taking somebody across state lines and such. You kidnapped that kid. You're going to get a ticket. (laughs) Although when they did eventually put into effect laws that punished people for kidnapping people and taking them across state lines, the law was so fuzzy, and God help me, I can't remember the name of it, but we've talked about it in a previous episode. Uh, The law was so fuzzy that they basically used it to punish uh, people who had interracial marriages. So, you know, it it didn't even matter at the time. It was like, oh, we have this law, but let's just use it for our racial prejudices, maybe? I think that was the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. No, it was later than that. Okay. All right, focus. Focus, yeah, yeah, focus. (laughs) Wow, Amber said focus. (laughs) I know, you guys guys are just like, poo, poo, poo. 
So, okay, so back to Herbert Hoover. He managed to (laughs) finagle the Department of Justice to potentially help, along with what would eventually be the FBI. At the time was the Bureau of Investigation, and they also told multiple other government agencies and organizations, hey, you're on standby. We might need you. Be ready. We're talking not just like, oh, the Department of Justice. We're talking the fucking Coast Guard. Mm -hmm. We're talking customs. We're talking immigrations. Get them on standby, because we know a fucking foreigner did this. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's pretty clear from the grammar. Yes. And they use the word gut for good. (laughs) So then begins the letters. Oh my gosh, the letters. It never ends with the letters. Amber, what do you have on the letters? Do you want to take over for a little bit? No, I, I, okay, so I tried to skim over that whole thing because I, it hurt my head. It was boring. I'm not going to lie. It's not super, I'm not saying it is boring, but it was boring to try and sift out the information and pull out what was important. No, no, you're absolutely right. It was boring as fuck and I didn't want to do it, so I didn't. So, well, if it's good, and here's, here's a good rule of thumb whenever I'm writing these notes. If it's boring to me... Yeah, it's exactly. going to be boring to listen. Well, of course, yeah. yeah. It's a rule of thumb with writing, too. Right. If you're just writing and creating your own stuff, oh, this is kind of boring me. I'm not paying attention. Oh, maybe it'll be boring to the listeners, too, or to the readers. But here I think it's a case of picking out all the irrelevant or boring stuff and trying to follow the, the more interesting trail. Here's what you do. You want to know what these ransom letters were? Number one, you can look them up. Or number two, you can take a German dictionary and an English dictionary, mm-hmm. stick them both in a blender, and just shake the fucking words out. Because you're going to get about the same amount of sense. That's a good description. That's a good... <laughs> good... 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 You can also probably go to our social media after this episode airs, and we'll put a few up there. But so... Okay, so the five days after the kidnapping, on March 6th, Lindy gets a second note... Uh, it was postmarked in Brooklyn. It has the signature, you know, the, the, the we'll call it the signature from now on, but just remember it's the blue circles, the red circle, etc. Uh, and now they're asking for $70,000, which was $1.3 million in today's money. In March 8th, we find this uh, gentleman named John Condon, who will play a part oh, to come. A weird this part. This guy. This guy. Yeah, he's just like raising his hand like, put me in, coach. Put me in. And in the weirdest, weirdest way. Okay, so he is a retired teacher and principal uh, who lives in the Bronx, and he loves the Bronx. I've read his testimony. He's all about the Bronx. And he's bored as fuck, apparently. Super I... bored. Retirement not sitting well with this 72-year-old. He, they call him well-known Bronx personality. I feel like this is kind of the Scott of the Bronx, quite honestly. Because it's like, you know, it's like one of those deals where, like, everybody in Johnstown kind of knows who I am. And they know know how weird I am. And quite honestly, if there was a kidnapping in Johnstown, they, they went, we need someone to meet with the kidnappers. I would go, yeah, okay, sure, why not? Yeah. I'll do this. But his way of going about this was to publish a letter in the Bronx Home News. So the newspaper for the Bronx kind of a weird thing there offering a thousand dollars for the kidnappers to drop the baby off with a catholic priest not a smart move horrible idea don't do it don't do it for all we know the kidnapper was a catholic priest (laughs) (laughs) and that would be addition to the ransom money um so uh on march 9th note number three comes to Lindbergh's attorney colonel harry breckenridge Apparently somebody had seen this letter in the paper and said, okay, John Condon will be our intermediary. And they had some other specifics regarding the delivery of the ransom and said, of course, what every ransom note says, don't contact the police. 
little too late, but it didn't matter because they weren't really taking police help. So it was like, well, we did contact them, but they're just off having... Donuts. I was going to let you say it. (laughs) Okay, you've contacted the police four times, but no fifth time. (laughs) That's where we draw the line. And Condon also got a note appointing him as intermediary and saying, we want you to confirm that you received this letter, uh, put a classified ad in the newspaper, and identify yourself as Jaffsey. J-A-F-S-I-E. And then he would have to sign every uh, communique in the newspaper, henceforth, I'm getting so fancy, <laughs> with this Jaffsey, which is so weird. I have no idea where this comes from. It's I, weird. I would it love... It probably is, like, Swedish for you little bitch. Yeah. Well, it would be German, <laughs> but... I would, I would love if, like, Condon wrote back, do you know how expensive, like, personal ads are in the paper? I will need some money up front. I'm retired. <laughs> I'm living on a pension. Jesus Christ. What, do you know how much Bronx personality pays? <laughs> Nothing! <laughs> so on March 12th, he gets, John Condon gets some condol, convoluted instructions, go to the subway station, there's a hot dog stand, there's a note under a rock. This all gets him to Woodlawn Cemetery, he meets a man there who calls himself John and henceforth will be known as Cemetery John. Um, even even John Condon called him Cemetery John. Condon says, I don't have the money and I won't be able to bring it until I see the package. And he, they ended up talking. John whips his dick out. <laughs> Impressive, but not what I meant. Yeah. And they end up talking for over an hour. Uh, Cemetery John says something interesting here. It is too j- dangerous. Might be 20 years or burn. Would I burn if the baby is dead? Not a great sign, I'm thinking. No. An hour. What do you talk to a kidnapper for? So what's your dream? <laughs> <laughs> what are your fears and hopes? I really yeah. want to get to know you, Cemetery John. Yes. So Cemetery John, were you like born in a cemetery and this is where you hang out? Or is this like a choice you've made? <laughs> So he did claim to only be a go-between. You know, he said, I have nothing to do with the kidnapping itself. I'm just an intermediary like you. So intermediary to intermediary, I have some proof that I'm legit. The baby was held in the crib by safety pins, which I don't fully understand that. Did they literally safety pin the baby to the crib? What was happening? I'm so confused. (laughs) I could see that. Like diaper pins, yeah. Yeah. But you actually like safety pin the baby through the through like the onesie like the baby's. Well, wearing. yeah, no, I get that. Not Obviously, like they're not the, piercing the skin. Through the fucking shoulders. <laughs> the but baby like, was held in place with barbecue skewers. Did their cribs have no rails? Was it to keep the kid from rolling out or something? Who knows? They Twenty even months. Have car seats. 20 months, okay. They can get up and climb out. Yeah, at 20 months, they totally can get up and climb out. True, yeah. So, um, when asked if he was German. Because the accent kind of was ringing a bell. He said, no, I'm Scandinavian. Nine! 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 I'm Scandinavian. (laughs) And uh, said he was part of a gang of three men and two women. So Condon actually offered, he said, I will go with you. Take me to the kidnappers. I will be an additional hostage as long as I can take care of the baby and identify him and make sure that you, you have actually, you know, baby Lindy, little Lindy, as they were calling him. To be fair, pretty ballsy move on Condon's part. Yeah, he even, this and this had been agreed upon with Lindy beforehand. Lindy gave him some of the baby's toys and told him some things to look for, you know, as far as identifying the, the, the child. Uh, Cemetery John said no, but said the baby's being held on a boat nearby. He's safe. Soon as I get the money, I'll signal the boat. They'll signal so that Lindy can find the boat. 
Um, and then said, I'll also send you... The, they kept on calling it a sleeping suit, and I got annoyed. So it's pajamas from now mm-hmm. on. Pajamas. Yeah. yeah. They. Uh, he said, well, I'll send you the pajamas to prove you know, that we have him. Those pajamas arrived at John Condon's house on the 16th, with along with another ransom note. The ransom had to be paid with the baby sight unseen. So, you know, you're not going to get to know whether the baby is safe. You just have to take our word. We want the money first. And then, you know, so they said, put an ad in the paper if you accept it. So Condon's like, all right, this is going to be COD. All right. It's going to be cash on delivery. <laughs> We're not fucking around with no, you know, I'll give you the product, but only after you give me the money bullshit. And there's some back and forth with another note that threatens to up the ransom to $100,000, which was $1.8 They're really, I mean, this is depression era. You, you know, you may have money, but that's a lot to yeah. ask. Of any, like, granted, it's for your baby, but still. Um, so there's some more back and forth. And then finally... On April 2nd, they give him directions and to get some more directions, to get some more directions. They keep on making this more convoluted and he eventually ends up at St. Raymond's Cemetery. A voice calls him to follow and, hey, it's Cemetery John. Hi again, old buddy, old I, pal. How's your dick? I like <laughs> I like the loot fisk. That's Scandinavian, right? <laughs> Schnitzel. I mean, no, 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 no. fuck, fuck. <laughs> So, uh, John Condom says... You know, John don't... Condom? Ah! It's bound I, to happen. I knew it was going to happen. <laughs> I knew it was going to happen. John Condon. Hi, I'm Freud. Whee! <laughs> meets him, and Cemetery John says, do you have the money? John Condon says, it's back in the car with Lindy, who, by the way, was also packing. He had a gun on him, of course. And John Condon says, you know what, look. It's the depression. Times are tough. They managed to negotiate the, the ransom back down to 50000 And then there's a deal. We'll give you the money. You'll give us a note on where to find the baby. And he goes back to the car. Of note is the fact that Lindbergh actually did have 70000 in the box. And when Condon comes back and he's like, okay, I got him down to fifty. Lindy's like, all right. And he just like wipes out some of that. And he's like, all right, making it rain, making it rain, making it rain. And 50000 <laughs> Like, it's just, awesome. It's just weird. It's Go like, back and see if you can get him down to 35. <laughs> yeah. That's all my baby's worth. Daddy needs a pair of shoes. <laughs> yeah. she's, she's cooking another one anyway. This uh, is fine. It's fine. It'll look just like this one. <laughs> and the ransom is delivered in a custom-made wooden box. They had done this on purpose, hoping that if they you know found it later, then there could be some, some evidence you know, to tie the kidnappers to the actual incident. Uh, the ransom was also, okay, so in some places it did say it was cash, but in most places I saw it said it was in gold certificates. Yes. yes. And they did this on purpose because they had to be exchanged. They were they were going out of circulation. They had to be exchanged by May 1st, 1933, which would be in about 13 months or so. So that could uh, help them. The bills had to be unmarked, but they recorded all the serial numbers. I don't have any gold certificates, but I actually have their... Uh... I actually have their uh, ancestors, uh, silver demand notes. Oh. I have I have like two or three. I think I have a one dollar and I have a five dollar silver demand note, and they look exactly like not not the modern dollars, mm-hmm. but like the um, the five dollar bills from about twenty five thirty years ago, uh, and. I they, missed those. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. They had the tinier portrait instead of the giant head on them, but it was the, the smaller portrait on the front, and instead. 
of saying like $5 at the top. It actually said like silver demand note right at the top. It was the exact same thing. And essentially what it was is you could take that piece of paper to the bank and go, I want $5 worth of silver. And they would go, here's $5 worth of silver. And that's exactly what the the gold certificate seemed to be. It's just, you know, moved from silver to gold. Although, Mm -hmm. and I looked them up and the pictures I could find, I couldn't tell for sure whether they were gold certificate because they were too blurry to zoom in on and see any writing. And, 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 but they looked very bill, like, like not necessarily exactly, but like you said, like the old bills. Gold certificates actually had, from what I was able to find, a band of yellow on them. Oh, interesting. To, and up at the top where, you know, you normally see like Federal Reserve or $5 or Silver Demand Note, if you've got one of those, it was a gold band that said gold certificate. All right. Now, here, here's a question for you. Can you see that it was gold or were you just reading that? No, I could mm-hmm. see that it was gold. Oh, okay. I'm not that colorblind. <laughs> It was in search of, honest it's to God. It's a fair question. After, <laughs> after you listen to this episode, go find the in search of episode on on the Lindbergh kidnapping because it is incredibly fascinating. So there finally is an exchange of money for directions to the baby, and I'm going to read the directions. Scott got the ransom note. I get the directions. <sighs> go for it. The boy is on the boat, Nelly. It is, and we're just shuddered. <laughs> it is a small boat, 28 feet long. Two persons are on the boat. And that is B-O-A-D, by the way. The, the are innocent. You will find the boat between Horseneck Beach and Gayhead near Elizabeth Island. Now, these places mentioned in the directions note are all in Massachusetts. So they go to Bridgeport. Uh, it's 47 miles away. I think it's Bridgeport, Connecticut, actually. Mm-hmm. They fly around looking for Nellie, the boat, and they find nothing. They search for dawn, from dawn until dusk for days. Nothing. John Condon puts another note in the paper. He says, can I get some better directions? Did I do something wrong? And there's no response. And that's it for communications, but it's not very long before we get some a serious development in the case, probably the most serious you can pretty much have. May 12th, 1932. <sighs> yeah. Don't take a pee outside, ever. But what gets me here is it's 75 feet off the road. He walks a lot farther than like Marcus does during our parties when Marcus okay. is like, I'm going to go pee and I can hear him because he's five feet away. You should really just be glad that he like during walks the parties. Walks away? Yeah. No, <laughs> not even that he walks away, that he just even goes outside. Well, we were outside. No, <laughs> like we started outside. Oh, yeah, okay. these are, I'm sorry, I should have specified campfires. Yeah, <laughs> I should have specified. He's not peeing five feet away from like Except my living room. Except for the one room. time when he actually peed in his own face and then had to run inside to clean up. I peed in my face! <laughs> was how he later confessed that to Amber. That's not a confession. That's pride. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, where was I? With? Oh, yes. Okay. May 12th, 1932. We have two delivery truck drivers. Uh, they stop on the side of the road about two miles south of the Lindbergh's uh, home in Hopewell. The the truck drivers were Orville Wilson and his assistant, Bill Allen. What kind of truck driver gets an assistant? Well, a delivery <laughs> driver. Okay. You need yeah. somebody else to help you unload the, 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 the crates of, of, of um, 1932 um, I don't know, old-fashioned stuff. Lap robes. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> yes, these the delivery drivers, uh, delivery driver and assistant, delivery driver assistant to the delivery uh, driver. There, there it is. <laughs> uh, they stop. Uh, one of them goes into the woods to pee. Alan? 
Okay, thank you. Yeah. Um, he sees a child's head and foot sticking out of the ground. I saw pictures. Ooh, oh, no. On, amazingly enough, 1970s television, the In Search Of episode actually had pictures of the body. Wow. And to how he, how he looked down and went, oh, that's a foot? Fuck if I know. Because, I mean, it literally looked like a lump of meat with a couple of ribs sticking out of it. Like, I mean, this could have been a cat. Yeah, it was It was very badly decomposed. Yeah. Plus, the animals had gotten to it, of course. Yes. Yeah. In fact, in fact, the uh, Lindbergh's own doctor uh, actually actually said how Lindbergh... Lindbergh identified it. He, he identified... Uh, he identified the, uh, the baby... By uh, by the overlapping toes on the right foot, uh, by the shirt, and by the number of teeth. Oh, I actually yeah. have that Betty Gao ID the body from from uh, two of those things: well. the, the, okay. the, the 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 foot and the toes. It could have been them both. Yeah, it could yeah. have been you know like her going for support and both of them being like, yes, those two things. You know. Yeah, but Lindbergh's own doctor looked at the body. And this is part of where conspiracies, and we're going to touch on some of those conspiracies a little bit later on. Mm-hmm. Lindbergh's doctor said, I wouldn't be able to identify that as a baby in a million years. Yeah, it's, I mean, and after that much time, yeah, yeah. and it's, it's springtime has hit, heat, you know, it's not necessarily super warm, but it's oh. warm enough to cause decom- decomposition to, to speed up. Well, there's been animal predation, too. Well, yeah, like I said, there's yeah. the animals, too. So, there like, it's missing it's, it's pieces a lot of, of baby. Yeah, a lot of combination of things that, that make this very difficult, I would think. And, but it, it, at least the, the, the skull, they were able to tell that there had been a blow to the head, and they were... I'm sure it was a little on the rudimentary side back then, but they were able to somewhat date it that it seemed like it was probably the night the baby was taken. And then uh, Lindbergh had uh, the body cremated. So He insisted on it. Another thing that I'm sure fuels... It always... It almost If somebody insists on, on cremation and, and there's any questions, it always fuels theories. Yeah. I've heard it in, in like half a dozen podcasts. And so it's to the point where no sh- no shade on cremation. You know, it, that's, that's a perfectly valid choice. But anytime I hear it in a true crime podcast where you're already looking for things to be suspicious of, somebody says, oh, he insisted on having her body cremated. I'm like, he did it! <laughs> like immediately. Well, I mean, it's it's a thing. Even, even if I was... Even if I would, let, I, I'm going to be very honest. I want to be rotted. Uh, I want my body donated to. There's a body farm. Oh, the body farm. Yes, yes. I, I want love my, the body It's farm. actually kind of hard to get into the body farm. It is. Yeah. They've got yeah. like a list of requirements. Yeah. People are dying to get in there. Stole that from my dad. He made that joke when about my mom mowing lawns at a cemetery. It's a total dad joke. Yeah. But if I end up murdered, I'm going to say this right now. Go ahead and bury me. So that they can dig me back up, and if new evidence comes to light, don't cremate me, don't get rid of the body, bury me to keep the evidence around. Okay, well, now we know. Yeah. It is all recorded on, 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 on tape, if it were 1985. <laughs> tape? <laughs> on Are tape. we on a fucking cassette someplace? On a hard drive. <laughs> the VHS that's going under there. <laughs> So, okay, so the police, um, now the investigation has changed from kidnapping to murder, and the police actually get to do something. 
They, yeah, 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 they finally they fucking they fucking pick on a woman until she kills herself. Yeah, yeah, they get to do something, but not great something. Uh, Violet Sharp, she's an immigrant from Britain who is working in a servant, not even in the Lindbergh home, but in the Morrow family home. So Anne's Mrs. Lindbergh's family mm-hmm. home. Violet Sharp is questioned three times. They get really intense. Her job is threatened now. That was always put in a sort of passive tense, though. I was never really sure whether it was the cops saying, you know, look, if you don't tell us what happened, you're going to lose your job. Or Lindbergh saying, look, if you don't tell them what's happened, you're going to lose your job. Or somebody else, you know, like it, it, was, it was never really clear whether it was them or not. I think it was probably a lot of everybody. Yeah, I think it was a lot of pressure from all sides. And she was also d- depressed over the, the death of the child. She kills herself the night before she's to be questioned a fourth time with silver polish containing potassium cyanide. And then her alibi checks out, Mm -hmm. which is like, oh, frick. So John Condon is also going around acting like a real weirdo. He's, every police department he goes there and he's like, I will find Cemetery John. I will not rest until I find O.J. Simpson's wife's real killers. Yes, yes. (laughs) It very much smelled of that. He's, at one point in time, he's on a bus. He makes a big scene. He announces his quote unquote secret identity, which is, I'm John Condon. And everybody around him's like, Rips, rips the huh? fake mustache off <laughs> yeah. just to reveal an actual mustache <laughs> yes. underneath. And he makes the bus stop because he'd seen a suspect on the street. He bolts off the bus and he chases after the suspect who he doesn't catch. And also, he was. To be a- fair, he was like 73. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah that's true. I, I don't expect him to catch many people. That is true. Let me get, get back here. <laughs> <laughs> My hip! <laughs> he was also in a vaudeville show about the kidnapping. Eh, a little tasteless. little tasteless. Once again, OJ did that book, If I Did It. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's stakes to high heaven. So there is a search for the, the bills. They send out 250,000 pamphlets to New York businesses so they'd know what to look for as far as the certificates certificates were concerned and also with the serial numbers listed that had to be a really thick pamphlet because there was a lot of bills there as i said 4750 i think was the number i came up with that's a lot so and bills did show up but at first it was in other places like chicago and minneapolis like kind of weird that they made their way out there but maybe somebody took a trip uh or sent some money to family or Mm -hmm. who knows yeah or traded or trade yeah yeah So they start appearing along the Lexington Avenue subway route around the east side. So on September 18th, 1934, a certificate from the ransom, so on this list. Now, I was a little confused on how this happened because I heard it about five different ways or read it about five different ways, depending on the source. So the the way that I saw this going down, uh, it was September 18th, 1934. uh, A Manhattan bank teller gets a gold certificate and it, they look at it and they go, holy shit, this is one of them. Yeah. They, they check the number and then they go, holy, holy shit. There's, there's a fucking, there's a fucking serial number. There's a license plate number yes. written on this. And it's a thing where they go, oh, okay. The gas station attendant, he brought that in and they go to the gas station attendant and they go, Tell us about this. And he goes, oh, yeah, I've, I've never really seen, like, one of these gold certificates before. It looked counterfeit. So as the guy was driving off, I wrote his license plate number down on it just in case. And I brought it to the bank, and they took it. So I guess it's okay, right? 
oh, shit, what do you mean? <laughs> so, okay, so yeah, that I think the missing piece I had in my research was that very few places mentioned that the serial number was on it. So I was like, mm-hmm. how'd they make the connection? And there was just, I was swimming in information, so... Um, so they trace that license plate number that was on the bill to one Richard Hauptman, which will, who he's also sometimes referred to as Bruno, yeah. which is very much a name of somebody who's been at least accused of some crimes, if not convicted, which, as a matter of fact, he's a German immigrant who had come over in 1924, and back home in Germany, he had a criminal record. Oh, yeah. He was born November 26, 1899, near Dresden. He was the youngest of five. He was a World War One vet. Uh, he was in the 177th reg- uh, Regiment of Machine Gunners. Did his list of injuries ever approach the list of injuries I gave you guys earlier? No, <laughs> no, 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 definitely not. Um, but uh, Richard Hopman and his friend back in Germany, they robbed two women with baby carriages. The women had the baby carriages. They didn't, like, wield them <laughs> as a weapon. Okay, I-, I need to say this because I was kind of reading over your shoulder and your notes. And for a second, I thought he rubbed two women with baby carriages. I mean, he could have re- done both at the same time. I can read my handwriting, okay? No, no, it clearly says robbed, but when I first looked at it, I thought it said rubbed, and I'm like, oh, he's just mm-hmm. kind of a pervert. Like, whatever. Well, this this weirdness all happened near Nebelschutz, oh, which is boy. another name I'm just going to say over and over and over until I fall asleep. <laughs> Nebelschutz. This was in our old tiny crime, and we had a judge with a fantastic name that Scott's just going to be repeating for the oh, rest of his judge. life. Dick and Mudge. <laughs> yes. And he burgled the mayor's house of his hound home in Germany. Guess with what? A ladder. Yes, he did. Was and, it on the second story? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and here's Hunt. the thing. How did how in the world did Richard Hopman enter the United States? Why would we let a criminal into the United States? Well, illegally, of course. He fucking stowed on an ocean liner to get here. <laughs> wow, you have a lot of information that I did not have on okay. the Good for you. <laughs> Thank Excellent. You. High five. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, they arrest him. They find a $20 gold certificate on him. And then they find $14,000 of the ransom money in his garage, hidden by shellac and framing wire, as one does with money that is obtained completely innocently. Yeah, a lot of people went, oh, you know, poor foreigner, $20, they're gonna gonna kill for... No, he had 14,000 fucking ransom dollars. Yeah, yeah. He is interrogated. He's beaten at least once. That does suck. Police, step it up. Don't you, you badger one woman into killing herself, and you beat the main suspect, which nowadays would kind of like nullify any confession that you did get, which they didn't get anything out of him anyhow. Um, they find more evidence in his home, and this is John Condon's contact info, address, and phone number. Written on a wall. In the closet. Where do you hide things? In the closet. So much so that if you're gay and don't want people to know, that's where you put your gayness. (laughs) (laughs) And the thing is, is that as far as I can tell from reading John Condon's testimony, or maybe it wasn't that, my sources are getting all mixed up in my head, but somewhere it seemed like the address, okay, yes, that was in the, the letter that John Condon had written to the Bronx Home News, but the phone number... Mm, that's a different thing. He didn't publish his phone number. So they also found a notebook with a sketch of the ladder used in the kidnapping. 
And I'm just fucking daydreaming. Oh, I had so much fun killing the baby. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make a ladder and use it for nothing bad. I don't know. He was German. Why have we turned him Swedish? Because he said he was Scandinavian, That's and true. we're much better at the Scandinavian because of the Swedish chef. That's this really what it comes down to. Is we're really we're, we're going with our strengths, and our strengths come from the Muppets. <laughs> <laughs> I never really watched the Muppets, so I'm just letting you guys have this. <laughs> Um, I have a feeling Amber wasn't super interested in this one because it wasn't gory enough. Mm-mm. She's dying for some gore. No, well, aside from the fact I am a, a little bit dying for gore, this also in- involves a nearly two-year-old boy, and I have That's a two-year-old also boy. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it was a little rough for me. So I, I kind of skirted over a lot of the parts that I didn't enjoy, which was, uh, this was so boring with the fucking ransom notes. There was like 15 <laughs> goddamn notes. I know. And it was like painful English, and I started twitching, and I think I'm having an aneurysm. <laughs> so, like, I just kind of skirted that. <laughs> they also found... It is Amber's turn to pick, so we're going to get just absolutely... Oh, shit. I, I have a list of the most awful ones I could find. I left it on my desk. Son of a... Damn it, Amber! Damn it! At work? Yes. Just, just text us tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Pick yeah. one and text us. I don't start my research till Wednesday. Lately, I've been starting when we do the bigger cases like this. I'll start on Monday or Tuesday, but you have time. I'll get you tomorrow. I'll get you absolutely, tomorrow. Absolutely, yeah. I've got a yeah. list. So, um, I'll add that to my arm. The ex lax murders. They <laughs> drowned you. in their own <laughs> shit. <laughs> uh, they... Pick a killer. Is what I'm <laughs> so if pick I get killer. pulled over, I'm done for. <laughs> well, no. Pick a killer, not pick someone to kill. You're on the side of good, at I, least you know okay, in I'll theory. Leave it pick kill then. <laughs> Maybe not in reality. All right, pick the, kill. Pick you know kill. what? If there you get pulled go. over, just go. Ah, I'm really hungry for pickles. <laughs> this isn't how you spell it. <laughs> I'm a German immigrant. I don't know it. Also, boat is that spelled B O A D? Boat. Boat. You're a very good police officer. <laughs> I will do anything to get out of this. There is a floorboard in the attic that matches to the wood from rail 16 of the ladder used in the kidnapping, both in the grain and in square nail holes in the rail that match to Joyce from the attic. And there were also like three other things that I don't care about because wood evidence bores me. Well, yeah, they called in a special wood examiner. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is a thing. It probably (laughs) is still now one. I hope they're actually called wood examiners. Yes, they should be. Or something to that horrible effect. So this is actually part of what later births the conspiracy. Yeah. Um, Because to make the grain of the wood match up, you would have to, the part that came from the ladder and the part that came from the floor, to make the grain match up, saying that it all came from the same tree, you have to lift one up about like a quarter of an inch, half an inch, to make the grain match. Nobody would cut the tree like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's the argument that, like, if this came from the same tree, then it would all be cut out evenly instead of one being slightly higher than the other. Scott's definitely going to have a lot to contribute when we get to alternate theories. <laughs> a lot. Not as much as you may think. I mean, we've contributed quite a bit as far as they're concerned already. Yeah. You studied the wood, didn't you? I did study the wood. Scott studies the wood. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll put pictures of the wood up on our social media, so you come come to our social media if you like wood. There's, there's, (laughs) I love it. Just like it's just like like that. There's actually a book. I found this book that people have made fun of. It's actually called Identifying Wood, and it's got this guy holding a fucking piece of wood with a monocle in his eye, and just at the bottom, like somebody wrote, "Yep, it's wood." (laughs) Post that on the social media. I beg you. We'll do. So. uh... 
Hoffman is indicted six days after his arrest in the Bronx for extortion. Two weeks later, New Jersey, he's indicted for capital murder. New York sent him to the New Jersey authorities to answer for those charges. And capital murder is an automatic death penalty in New Jersey at the time. As we said earlier, this was another trial of the century. This one kind of holds up. It does kind of hold up, yeah. Like, does it? Well, here's the thing. Fatty Ardbuckle, one of the trials of the century, yeah, kind of recently, okay. O.J. Simpson, you really can't count that because it was right at the end of the century, so it's going to be fresh in everybody's memory. Fuck, people are still talking about the Lindbergh baby. Yeah. I mean, I mean I'm... I, <laughs> I made a comment once, uh, actually I made a tweet, so if anybody wants to go back and find this, it's there, about a year ago. We were in a restaurant and we, the waiter had just vanished into the ether, had not been seen forever. Ages had passed, I had grown new gray hairs and everything. And I looked at Jackson and I was like, our waiter is Lindbergh baby levels of vanished. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're making, like, they have made numerous jokes about the Lindbergh baby kidnapping on Family Guy and American Dad. I had those yeah. in my head the entire time when we were, I was working on this. All right, so back to the trial. Um, it's in Flemington, New Jersey. Flemington. I just want to... <clears throat> that, yeah, that's a gross name. It's a gross name. That's that's a bad name. Uh, it begins on January 2nd, 1935. Over 700 reporters flock to the town now, for this. Now, the thing that I find very interesting about this... Remember, this is the 30s. Yeah. Judge Thomas Whitaker Trenchard fucking allowed cameras. Yeah. So that the entire world can see. You can go look at footage of, of Bruno Richard Hoffman being cross-examined passionately. Mm-hmm. May I say, it? it is not, it is not like a, and where were you on the night? It was like, and you f- lied to him, didn't you? You lied now. No, sir, I did not lie. You lied to this guy, so you're lying now. It was, I mean, it was intense. I didn't see some of the what? testimony, but I read some of it, and it was, it was intense, yeah. His lawyer version just went Irish. Did, did you catch yeah, that? He did. He did. I mean, that well, was... Well, uh, we, we will say... Now, granted, this was Hopman's lawyer. It was Edward J. Riley. So, Riley. He was called the Bull of Brooklyn. He was a hard-drinking, hard-lawyering kind of guy. And uh, he was actually retained by the New York Daily Mirror mm-hmm. in exchange for the rights to Hopman's story. So, that definitely would not fly today. I don't think you could get away with that today. Um, and the prosecutor's opening statement told the story of the kidnapping as he saw it, which has come to be, I think, the generally accepted story. But then we do have, like I said, the alternate theories. Hoffman went up the ladder, which again was a homemade, rickety-ass, makeshift extension ladder with less weight than he came down with. He came down with a 20-month-old. Should have looked up the average weight of 20-month-old. 20-month-old. Probably about... 25 pounds. Okay, so about 25 pounds. Extra 25 pounds he comes down with. That broke the ladder, which caused the blow to little Lindy's head, and also was probably the sound that Charles Lindbergh heard that he thought was a crate, Ugh. which is horrifying. Yeah, that's that's having to live with that for your, your whole life is just... And that memory, I think, would, would stick with you once you realized what that was. Oh, therapy. therapy. They didn't have it back then. I have broken a bone pretty badly in my life. I broke my right leg and it does make a snapping sound. Mm. It's... I have not uh, broken anything that I... I I, I fractured a collarbone when I was small, but... So Riley, so this is the defense attorney, his theory, or theories, should I say, seemed to be that it had been 
Lindbergh's neighbors in revenge because Lindy cut off their access to the woods. And shouldn't Lindy really look into his servants' backgrounds more because they might be members of some random Detroit gang as he was questioning one of them, as he was questioning Betty Gow, I believe it was. And he was like, have you ever heard of, it was like the purple something, this gang in Detroit? And she was like, no. And he was like, really? Are you sure? And then he basically did the, the whole, like the implication thing where he makes it like, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say it outright, but I'm going to imply that you have ties to this gang. I, I like Scottish th- nurse. I like to think that he was just Make, making stuff up. Have you ever heard of the plaid kilt wearers of yeah. Chicago? I wish I'd written it down because it was do purple it something. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, he's implicating Condon, which, granted, um, there was some interesting stuff in his testimony, but... But, you know, here's the thing, like, he's got, like, have you ever heard of this? Well, here's what I think happened with no real evidence. Meanwhile, the evidence against Hopman, you know... $20,000 worth of ransom money uh, found in his possession. Handwriting and spelling samples. Wood from the ladder matching the missing wood from the home, including the nail patterns. Not just like, oh, you know, hey, he's got Condon's address written on the thing. He's got sketches of the ladder, and he bought a $400 radio with no source of income for his wife. And you're like, oh, $400? That's pretty expensive, right? No, this is like 7000 This is a $7,000 radio in today money. And where did he get that money? Because he quit his job yeah. the day after the ransom was paid. And did you mention that he sent his wife on a vacation to Germany? Because I did not. Because he sent not. his wife on a vacation to Germany. Wow. So, and not only that, he was seen near the crime scene twice in the days prior to the kidnapping and seen by a neighbor the day of the kidnapping with a ladder in a green vehicle. And I believe he had purchased it over there was record that the the car, I, I couldn't find it because my I had 18 million tabs open, people. This is a big one. And Hopman goes... He had goes, a green vehicle, yeah. Hopman goes, well, the money was given to me by Isidore Finch. Yes, yes, that's his excuse. Isidore Finch. It's, uh, it's written... Fish, actually, Fish. It's yeah, it's written Finch, but it's pronounced Fish. Isidore Fish. Oh, I kept on writing it Fish. Oh, okay. I saw it Finch. Uh, oh, but okay. it was a thing where, like, it was a big joke around the town. That it was like, oh, you know what? This story that Hotman has spinning sounds a little fishy. Oh, <laughs> that's a bad joke. Yeah, too. Hotman's fishy story. I, that was that was like a big joke at the time. So yeah, he basically says, uh, "This money isn't mine. It was my my friend and my business partner, Isidore Fish. He left to return to Germany in December of 1933, and and then I found this." money in a shoebox on the top shelf of my broom closet just randomly and I knew that it was fishes somehow and uh but he owed me $7,500 so I just kept it and then well fish died in May 1934 so it didn't really matter you know and his wife Anna now this is the rebuttal uh she's admits upon cross-examination she says um so that top shelf where the money was I actually hang my apron up on a hook that's higher than that, and I never saw this box. Sorry, honey. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. Don't be mad. Don't be mad. I don't think you're going to have to worry about it. <laughs> but I may have just ruined your rebuttal to the evidence. Just a little bit, just a little bit. Hope you like the smell of bacon. And, I mean, other witnesses said that fish was so broke that he could barely afford his $3.50 a week rent. Have you seen a picture of Fish? Uh-uh. Oh, he is a creepy-looking fucker. Well, he was dying of tuberculosis, and he couldn't afford to treat it, so kind of doubting that he had his hands on this $50,000 in ransom money at any point in time. 
And the other rebuttals to the evidence were that, you know, the, the contact information that he wrote on the closet wall. Well, he said, I was reading about the story in the paper while I was in the closet. So I wrote down the address and I don't know how I got the phone number and the sketch of the ladder. He said, well, a kid drew that. And Mysterious children breaking into my house and sketching ladders in my paper. Weirdos. <laughs> there was one little break here where Condon actually pointed out Hoffman and said, that was Cemetery John. That's the guy I met in the cemetery. But in a police lineup before that, he actually flat out said that Hoffman wasn't Cemetery John. But then again, John Condon, not the most reliable source of information. So, yeah, his... A lot of the evidence does definitely tie him to it, and his his attempts to dispel this evidence really weren't that believable at I, all. I think we got him, boys. I think we got we got at least part of part of whatever yeah. happened. So uh, Riley does put up lots of witnesses who try to alibi Hopman or point the blame to other people, and pretty much all of these people get absolutely destroyed because they are either incredibly unreliable witnesses, like a speakeasy operator who had a ton of aliases. Or in one case, one who was a professional witness. So basically somebody who gets paid to sit on the stand and lie and, and alibi people. Like, I wonder how we would do if one of us was on trial and the rest of us came to, like, defend them. we do poorly. Probably. Super poorly. <laughs> Horribly. <laughs> I mean, but I think a lot of us look good on paper. Yeah. Until we talk. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> so the cross-examination of Condon by the defense attorney. I read almost all this when Condon started to blather sometimes. And then they started talking about some stuff with a... Boathouse or shack, and I was super bored with that. But uh, <laughs> admitting There's, that sometimes I skim, okay? This I only get child's so time. murder is boring. <laughs> Not no. that, but the cross examination. It was long, and they they had to take a lunch break, okay? <laughs> so basically, um, when Riley is cross examining Condon, he says, "Do you know anything about this book that was checked out from the New York Public Library two weeks before the kidnapping? Oh, it happens to be a book about German signs. Uh, and it, oh, it was checked out by a Dr. John Francis Condon, too. What do you know? And then he even has Condon like do a, a signature while on the stand. Mm -hmm. There's a little laugh about it because he's like, oh, that's my bank signature. I'm trusting it with you. Ha, ha, ha. Everybody laughs. 1930s humor. So, and then they also... Seems you also checked out kidnapping for dummies. <laughs> By a Scott Mort? <laughs> Time traveler? <laughs> so, also questioning the fact, we mentioned that the first letter that John Condon wrote to the uh, Bronx Home News was to the Bronx Home News. He said, why did you send this letter to the Bronx Home News? Why would you expect the kidnappers to be reading this tiny little local paper when they could have been anywhere at this point in time? Because I love the Bronx. I love the Bronx. Yeah, he basically, is, oh, he's so bad. I know. He's that guy. He's that guy. And uh, there's also some discussion of the sign. I wasn't able to 100% clarify this because there's some, like, misattributed, like, pronouns and everything in Ace the actual... Ace made a song about it. I saw it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it opened up my eyes. Amber. Are you happy? I saw the sign. <laughs> I had to finish it. I had to finish it. So, okay. I feel sick. <laughs> It's been a long time since I've sung, <laughs> but I haven't sung any of my songs. Uh, I'm sorry. I just like my the attention deficit disorder is kicking in, and the like, Ace of Base is a lot like ABBA. One of the women from ABBA is a Nazi experiment. What? You don't later 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 later. later, later. Look it up. <laughs> so there's also some discussion of the sign, the, the, the signature. 
Um, and it seems like what I could deduce is that the letter that Condon got in response to the ad that he put out was the only letter with no signature on it. Didn't have the circles and the holes and all that jazz. Um, and he didn't know about the sign until he got the letter and then used that to get into contact with Lindbergh. Hey, I got a letter in response to a letter I put in the paper. It's about your baby, etc. Then they go on, the, the prosecutor goes on redirect and it kind of seems to clear this up that he said, oh, well, I, I misspoke. It was really me opening the letter with a sign on it, you know, that gained me access to the Lindberghs because they were like, well, how do we know this is legitimate? And I said, oh, well, there's this sign on it. But at first it really seemed like his letter that he got in response from the kidnappers didn't have the sign. So there's some suspicion there. I honestly have some, I have some serious doubts. I, I've got serious doubts about the entire thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, some people do. So on February 13th, at 11.21 a.m., deliberations begin. They end that same day at 10.28 p.m. And it's the anniversary. No, it's not February. It is February. Today. It's the anniversary. Yeah. Today, Today is the anniversary. anniversary. That is mm-hmm. correct. Yes. I, I, I was like, what month is it? Fuck. I didn't note that when I, and I completely <laughs> forgot it when I said it because I have no idea what day it is generally lately. So, yes. the Let's see. This was 1934, 35? 35. I believe. I don't know what date be... today is. I 35. Don't... Yeah, 35. it was 35. Not, yeah. Dates are not my thing. <laughs> I also thought 85 it was Friday. years ago. 85 years ago ago today, they came back at 10.28 p.m., so less than 12 hours later, and Hopman is found guilty of murder in the first degree and immediately sentenced to death. He maintained his innocence up until the end. A newspaper said, if you tell us your story, but only if the story involves you kidnapping a child, we'll give your soon-to-be widow $75,000 thousand dollars oh and by the way your soon-to-be widow has a child and he said no and all of his appeals were denied and on april 3rd 1936 at 8 44 p.m 2000 that sound you just heard was 2000 volts of electricity in the electric chair no 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 they put him in a giant beehive they put him in one of those bug catchers (laughs) it was at your grandma's house and the bugs would fly up to it at night now all night your punk your your conversations would be punctuated by those were so fun i miss those i I miss those too those are great every once in a while you got one that went oh yes Yes. those are the juicy bugs oh yes so, uh, you guys don't have anything else on the trial? Nothing on the trial, nothing on the uh, execution. Okay, all right. So, the aftermath. Um, Anne, Anna Hauptman, the, the accused and convicted widow, sued New Jersey twice in the 1980s. Both of those suits were dismissed, and she died in 1994 at age 95. So, what we were saying about life expectancy, kind of not actually uh, coming to fulfillment here. Some people live long. The Lindberghs, they got so much public attention that they fled to Europe. They, they spent some time in England and some time in France. The Lindbergh did some research with a French surgeon, and they together worked to invent a glass pump that would later make heart surgery possible. Kind of crazy. Like, I guess a man of many talents, along you, with those big balls. You know, <laughs> it, it's a thing where, like, the whole thing where he, he would have owned a gas. No, he wouldn't. No, he would never own no, a gas No, no, this, this was a very intelligent man and, right. and with many interests, yes. Right. 
It's and yeah. passions. No and passions. And that's the way it is. <laughs> a lot of people who who have this thing, they have a lot of different passions. Uh speaking of heart surgery, the guy that helped invent the artificial heart was also the voice of Tigger on Winnie the Pooh. Oh, oh nice. <laughs> Fun fact. Yeah, there yeah. it is. The more you know. <laughs> Tigger wants a heart. So uh, <laughs> then then we get to where is Lindbergh a Nazi? This is quite something. because yeah. the, the trajectory of this life to go from public hero to public pity, really. Pity and, and sympathy and, 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 you know, people who, who were rubbernecker target to public scourge is, is really quite the trajectory. Um, in World War II, much like his father, he advocated for neutrality. Uh, he had gone to uh, Germany and towards some of their air facilities. Among other things. Among other things. <laughs> yep, he did some other touring there, that's for sure. Uh, one of his tours was from Hermann Goring himself. Oopsies. Oops, oopsies, oopsies. And he he did give us, he did, Lindbergh gave us a lot of information from those tours and, and from his, his adventures in Germany. <laughs> and that gave us a lot of information that helped us in the war. Mr. Lindbergh, but, here's where we keep the uh, Nazi UFOs. <laughs> and over here's where we keep the Deklaka, the time machine. And over here's where we keep the Lindbergh bit. Uh, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting to see. I know it'll always go somewhere good. <laughs> so, and then Hermann Goring gave um, Lindbergh the Commander Cross of the Order of the German Eagle just a few weeks before. Crystal Knot. What? Not not a great look, not a great look, but everybody was like, well, to refuse it would have been gauche or would have been a, a faux pas or something. Not it's good. Like, I'm no, bothered. Not good. I'm bothered by <laughs> something good. here. I'm very bothered by something here that's, that's happening, and it's ridiculous. Why am I able to do a German accent for Hermann Goring but not Bruno Hauptmann? I don't know. It's because you associate him with Scandinavian because he said it was Scandinavian. You're like, well, I'll believe one word out of your mouth, and that word is Scandinavian. Scandinavian. <laughs> So sometimes, occasionally, all right, like reading through a couple of, of Lindbergh's quotes, sometimes his reasoning seemed politically sound. It was like, well, you know, if we get rid of Hitler, there'll be a power vacuum, and then the Russians will, or the Soviets will just sweep in, and that's still not good for anybody. Um, but at the same time, sometimes his reasoning was very anti-Semitic. So it really seemed like he was thinking about all sides of the issue, but some of the issues wasn't too fond of Jews. Jews, am I right? The nose. Even Burn them. Even Roosevelt himself I stole my line. Roosevelt himself <laughs> said, "If I should die tomorrow, I want you to know this: I am absolutely convinced Lindbergh is a Nazi." Roosevelt. Roosevelt said that about Charles Lindbergh. If I believe anything out of anybody's mouth, I think Roosevelt. <laughs> and remember, the way the public saw Roosevelt. They saw him as a Superman. Yes, he was here, another Superman. He was another hero. Yes. Yeah, here is a guy who had polio, a devastating disease at the time, an absolutely crippling, near fatal disease. You know, if it didn't kill you, it left you horribly, horribly disfigured mm -hmm. and twisted. 
Um, and here he is. This guy's gotten over polio and he's standing in front of a podium mm-hmm. making a speech. What they didn't tell you is they actually had to fucking stand FDR in a wire frame and bolt him in to make these yeah. uh, make these speeches. But, I mean, the public didn't know that. They saw him as yeah. like, my God. Well, even if they knew that, they wouldn't have cared because he was standing. Yeah. 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 And uh, yet he still couldn't stand up to his really overbearing mother. If you've ever... Uh... In right. need of a rabbit hole. I'm just saying. No, I'm. We're getting to. We're getting okay. to you, Amber. I know you have some material. We're getting to it. I just wanted to say we are on the subject of Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. Was a hero, but uh, his, his his mom really re- completely drove his life. Oh so. my god. Yeah, I've I've been to the Roosevelt's mansion, and I think it's Virginia or West Virginia. I have no I idea. Took a tour of it. There are more portraits of his mother than there are of any other family member in that in that place. You seem very nervous. I feel I bad am. that you're like oh very <laughs> sad for his wife. Yeah. So, okay, so Lindbergh did eventually come uh, and support the war in the end. To his credit, he said that when he toured the concentration camps after the war, I should state, he was was disgusted and horrified by what he saw there. So he did he did like see, you know, some, some truth, but he just kept on talking about, well, look who owns all the media. And it's like, oh, God, dude, you're really presaging 2020 a little too much. Um, so, uh, Amber, would you like to talk about Charles Lindbergh's extracurricular activities? Uh, you, you like to talk about fucking? Talk about fucking. <laughs> <laughs> so we actually don't know how many illegitimate children that he has. So from what I read, there's at least three over, like, Germany, France. Mm, two men and a woman. Yes. Yes. But Lord only knows how many more there were. Because, I mean, they're all illegitimate. Some of the, the foreign women might not have known who he was. But there's at least three illegitimate children in Europe. I've got seven. Uh, he had three with Brigitte Hussheimer, two with her sister, Marietta Hussheimer. Oh! And two with a woman named Valeska, no last name given. Uh, and then he also had five more children with Anne, and this was all at the same time. By the way, this was not like when I first saw the list of his children, I was like, oh, he remarried. Nope. This was all during his marriage. Oh, yeah. I did not get all that. I knew about the three. So you and I got the same source there. Some of these may not be necessarily verified by DNA. Um, It was uh, there was some DNA confirmed from one of these sets of children uh, around 2003. But this wasn't um, something that even the children knew. He used a pseudonym when he visited the children. Uh, or when Charles he visited... Bindberg. Yes. <laughs> My name is Charles Windberg. Um, you can call me Windy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> and the mothers all kept their, their father's identity from them. So it was, it was very much a case of, you know, skeletons in the closet, hardcore, especially when we have the two sisters, which is the only thing that makes Did, me think that whole so sister thing might be So they didn't tell each other that they... Like, I'm confused about the sister the, thing. I think the sisters probably, I'm, I'm assuming they knew. You have to know at some point in time, especially when you have all these children being spit out that look exactly like Charles Lindbergh. You have to look and be like, wait a minute, why does your son look exactly like my son? I don't know. Another Lindbergh. Another Lindbergh. Another Lindbergh. <laughs> the jeans are strong. Oh, that wow. is a fantastic little, like, rap. I love it. It had a nice rhythm. That's going to be in my head all night. Now, now, here's the thing that fascinates me. These two men and a woman, they they had the DNA test done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They actually got the DNA test off love letters from Charles Lindbergh to prove, like, to prove they was the father. Like, where did he lick the envelope? They got the DNA off that, which to me is astounding. And they also, I think, is very kind. 
that they waited until both their yeah. mother and Anne Morrow Lindbergh were deceased. There is a gentleman, though, whose birth name, well, whose given name is Paul Husted. He is from Santa Cruz, California. That one is interesting. Yeah. He claims that he is Charles Lindbergh Jr. He doesn't know what happened, but he was raised by somebody else, and he is absolutely convinced he is Charles Lindbergh Jr. His and then therapist. A kidnapped baby. That's yeah. what we're talking about here, just to clarify. Right. And he is absolutely convinced, and the ther- his therapist actually sit back, sits back and goes, yeah, he's he's 100% certain that he is Charles Lindbergh Jr. And on top of that, he favors the Lindberghs. He mm. has he a looks lot of just the- like them. Yeah. And he went under hypnosis with the therapist and stuck to the story. And actually, they, he passed a polygraph as well that he is just so convinced that he's the Lindbergh baby. He's not lying. Yeah. He wants to have a DNA test and the family is going, nope. No. Mm. He's asked several times, actually, and they've said no. This I'm goes suspicious. This goes back to a a book from 2010 written by Jim Baum. Uh it's called Beneath the Winter Sycamores. Jim Baum implies that Charles Lindbergh Jr. showed signs of some disabilities, some mental disabilities. Mm-hmm. So the Lindberghs faked the kidnapping. So the child could be raised in Germany. Mm-hmm. Where do they head to afterwards? They head over to Germany. Now they're well. They go to England and France. Yeah, and then we don't have him living in Germany that I'm aware of. We just have him going visiting there. To, now I could be wrong. I don't have his exact movements, but as far as I know, he just went to look at their air capabilities and, and check out the situation. Yeah. On top of that, criminal defense attorney Gregory Aldrin, who wrote the book Crime of the Century, believes Lindbergh was originally going to play a prank, saying, oh, the baby's been kidnapped. Well, he had and... just done it a week prior. Yeah. He grabbed the baby, hid in a closet to scare the mother just to be funny mm-hmm. and, and so there is a theory that he tried to play another prank because he was out he ordered that the nurse not go in the room because he didn't want to spoil the baby and so there's a theory that he went to play the prank mm-hmm. and accidentally killed the baby yeah dropped the baby and this kind of ties in with uh author anthony scaduto and if you do watch the uh the old 1970s uh, In Search Of episode. That is season five, episode eight, I believe, of In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy. It is extremely well done, but Anthony Scaduto is a huge part of that. He wrote the book Scapegoat, saying that Bruno Hoffman was set up for all this. Uh, He has some pretty compelling evidence that the latter was fabricated evidence Mm -hmm. um, because he said, oh, you've got like, you know... They've taken wood out of your attic, yet you have an entire garage filled with wood, which Hoffman did have. Why would you use wood from your own home to make a ladder whenever you've got perfectly good timber sitting in your garage? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and he also says, you know, the child was so decomposed and you have Charles Lindbergh identified the baby. You know, with and he identified it by the number of teeth, but this thing was massively decomposed. It did not look human 
in the slightest. Well, and there's also the shirt. You have to keep in mind the shirt that Betty Gao had made for the baby. It, it this, I'll tell you what. It, but it's, Betty Gao also is the other person that identified the body. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, like, you think that she can't be paid off? She's a nursemaid. Well, that's absolutely true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there is. One hates to say conspiracy. And Lindbergh was probably love fucking to say her. Conspiracy. Lindbergh I do. was probably fucking her. Come on. Yeah. Come on. The, yeah. <laughs> Let me show you. I'm making my yeah probably. Face. Let me bend you over a barrel and show you the fifty states. This is, <laughs> this is a little move I like to call the the transatlantic thumb. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna give you the Ortigue Prize. <laughs> a little hit. It's my dick. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's definitely fascinating. Do I think Hopman did it? Fuck yes. Um, <laughs> a lot of the evidence, really? aside from the wood. I do. Uh, so much of the other evidence does point to him, and his attempts to dispel that evidence were never convincing in I any way. I think he was involved, but I think he was paid to be involved. Okay, involved, yes. May, but having so much of the money, if he... Because okay. Lindbergh gave it to him. I do. Lindbergh <laughs> gave it to him. But what about the other people? He just lived at his home. He didn't move or he didn't run away with the money. If there were other people involved, why didn't they come after him for the ransom money? The 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 brunt of the evidence says Hopman did it. But I will say, I will say, boy, some of the evidence is a little strange. One thing that I'm thinking is that you did have the two sets of footprints. One that was waiting where he left the ladder. And that other set of footprints was smaller. The only thing I can think of to answer that question of why didn't the other conspirators or people involved come to him and be like, hey, you've got the ransom money. It, it's all over the news. Or I'm assuming it was. Why don't we have our share uh, is if that set of smaller footprints belonged to his wife. We have no idea. Yeah. That is, I'm, 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 this is, I'm going to go ahead and sing now. Rampant speculation. Amber got in on it. Yes, nice. yes, yes. <laughs> so I, I would be curious to say how small. Whenever you say small, yeah. Footprints. The thing is that they didn't really measure the 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 the, right. the footprints. So the the cops got some criticism for that. Rightly so. I could see I could see it being a situation. Just God, it's been said to me where he drops the kid. The kid doesn't die right away. So the smaller set of footprints is actually Charles Lindbergh's juniors. And it's like, come on, kid, walk yeah. it off. How small is a question, but yeah, that's pretty far. I don't know. I, I don't know. why. And why would you run with the kid to, like, the woods around the house? Like, would that? why would that be your first instinct? I'm not sure. I think... We I've, could conspiracy theorize about this for days. There's so yeah. many different tendrils and threads that we can pick and pull at. That's the, that's the, that's why it's lasted for so long. Absolutely. There are still so many unanswered questions and so many possibilities that we can bring up that, you know, that, that I didn't even see in the reading. I never saw... Like, I'm sure somebody out there at some point has said, what about Hopman's wife? I'm sure I'm not the first. But I didn't see it in any of my readings, so it just only just came to me. So, yeah, we could do this all night. But I think... Uh, you I, have to pee. I think it's time uh, to tell everybody that uh, if you enjoyed hearing about Charles Lindbergh's Ortega Prize <laughs> and how many women he gave it to. And, and giant balls. This fascinating case, which has so many possible 
answers that never seem to answer all of the questions we could ask. You can rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, Give us that five-star review for all of our hard, hard work and Scott's jokes and Amber's sociopathy. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you can also, and it does really help, honestly. It really helps to get us moving. You can also go to patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, and we have different tiers there for membership rewards uh, that you can get, and including our old tiny crimeys, which have been so fun lately. Okay, oh. so for the record, old tiny crimeys is Christy knows what it is, and Scott and I do not. And Christy has a lot of fun with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, but they always end up picking up on stuff that I don't expect them to pick up on, so <laughs> they're too smart for me, damn it. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, they're about 15, 25 minutes on average, and they're just like little snack crimes. And then uh, our, if you don't want to do the monthly subscription thing, if you're just the dollar on the nightstand kind of guy or gal or gender neutral thing here, um, you can PayPal us, oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. We also have our Amazon wish list that you can access via uh, the link tree on all of our social media. That is oldtimeycrimey, our group, I'm going to stress group, not page, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and that is all of my social media stuff. So, guys, what's going on this weekend? What you doing? I want to take a nap. (laughs) Amber's going to be in jail because they'll pull her over and see pick kill on her hand from where she has to to choose a killer for next week. My wrist says HDMI, but it looks like homie. (laughs) And then 845 Tuesday, pick kill. So I know what these things mean, um, but it looks suspicious. (laughs) I am going to take a picture of your wrist for the social media so that we can show everybody um, what we do. There we go. So yeah, uh, so so Amber's gonna get uh, Amber's gonna be in jail, and we'll be bailing her out mm-hmm. essentially. No, that's no, right. breaking, breaking her out. I, yeah, don't you're worry, right. guys. They're never gonna catch me. <laughs> <laughs> never have, never will. <laughs> I'll probably be driving around and uh, or riding around. Chase you around. Yeah. <laughs> I am taking some vacation time this week. Good for you. Yeah, I'm taking All I'm right. taking like Sunday and Monday off. I work Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. I'm taking Sunday and Monday off. Uh, a, a good friend of mine is coming into town. We are going to have a blast. Looking forward to it. And. Yeah, I just I need I need the time. Mm-hmm. I need some time. I'm you, you so should. tired. You deserve it. You've earned it. I've worked damn hard. <laughs> I have uh, I have agreed to take the children to Chuck E. Cheese again. No. Yeah. Um. So they loved it, but this time I have to get them their own cards so that they don't need me to ride rides. Well, there you go. Now you can just sit back and relax. You'd think that, but no. Oh. My kids are um, like me, but miniature and kind of drunk. (laughs) And so um, they like to start the rides and then try to climb to other non-moving parts of the ride (laughs) from the moving ride. Oh, genetics are a funny thing, how strong those genes can be. They really are. So (laughs) they they need very close supervision or they will try to break the train. Oh, my gosh. um, Which they learned has a safety feature that if you stand in front of it, it stops. So one of them will stop the train for the other one while the Chucky Mouse is like, are you going to fix that? 
So um, that's what I'm going to do. And then after that, I'm going to drink heavily. Yeah. Yeah. You've earned it as well. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's my plans. (laughs) We are doing uh, a nice dinner for Valentine's Day. I'm looking forward to that. I have a dress that is, um, I'm going to call it boobity boobity. Um, To the extent that... Boobity uh, boobity. It's a boobity boobity dress to the extent that I need safety pins. And I have some fabric tape that I ordered off of Amazon. Some double-sided fabric tape. And I'm going to employ all of this just in order to make sure that it's boobity, but not um, undergarment-y. So it's not showing my bra because there's a, a line there. I think I'm going to require at least photographic evidence of your boobity boobity. I'll boob you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'd I'll like send you to a boob be, pic. I'd like to be. Left. I, I mean, I have been staring at her cleavage most of the night, so I'd like to be left out of this because it would just make me feel awkward. Sure. Thank so, I, so <laughs> you. Don't want to show cleavage. I don't want to show cleavage. <laughs> no. After, well, there's a first time for everything. After <laughs> after the show, I'll make you guys feel awkward if you want. So, <laughs> so yeah, that is uh, that's my weekend. Um, and Jackson's getting a new car, so we might probably, I think, so we'll probably be driving around in that and seeing how it is. So oh, very so excited. Fancy. Well, it's been he's had the the same Ford Focus for the past like eleven years or something like that. Um, so he's earned it. <laughs> Speaking of people who've earned things, he's earned it. Really? 11 years? Yeah. He's had, the, he's had the LBC, the little bitch car for a long while. Well, that little bitch car is well taken care of. Yes. Yes. Like, he does a good job. Well he's taken he's care always of. been very good at, at car maintenance. So, so on that weirdly weird to end on note, um, how about we end on this note? I have to urinate and I don't care who knows it. We're <laughs> You're all going to find out. Cause we're... <laughs> You're lucky I'm not doing this on mic. Either, either we... Do you have we... water that you can, like, pour out slowly? You bastards. Yeah. All right. Either, either we end it now or we all float out of this room together. Exactly. <laughs> hey, we're a team, guys. We're a team. All right. So thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Old Timey Crimey. This pretty epic one we went through a lot there uh we really appreciate you listening we hope you have a good time and we had a really fantastic time learning all of this stuff about charles Lindbergh and the uh Lindbergh kidnapping and sharing it with you so uh thank you for joining us and we will see you or you will hear us actually well we'll see you we're, we're looking in your windows you don't know it uh next week bye 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 My sources for this week are the ever-popular wikipedia.org, eastbaytimes.com, latimes.com, and the wonderful TV show In Search Of, Season 5, Episode (laughs) 8. I also have the Los Angeles Times, uh, Crime Museum, and All That's Interesting with Katie Serena. My sources this week are fbi.gov, Wikipedia, of course, uh, also Katie Serena, and uh, Famous Trials, True Crime Cast, which is a podcast, uh, an article on Info Please by David Johnson, New York Times, and Biography.com. Mm-hmm.